Perspectives of history, empires and kings, the common people throughout history, the struggle of civilization. It's Historical Intentions with Joe Newton. back, if you will, to when you were a teenager. Remember all of the greatest problems that you had when you were a teenager. Some of them would be something like, you know, trying to get an A on a paper, trying to ace that math test. But maybe the biggest problem modern teenagers face is just trying to figure out who you are and trying to figure out what do you want to do with the rest of your life. There's so much pressure towards figuring out what you want to do in college and then what you want to spend the rest of your life doing I myself felt it when I was very young. You know, when I was 11, I started wondering about what my future career was going to be and how I needed to have my life all completely worked out. And I was 11. I imagine a lot of people have similar feelings. Or maybe some wake up a little later to it and worry about it when they're 18 or later. But instead of that childhood, imagine one where you knew exactly who you were and exactly what you were going to do. Imagine that you've been primed your entire life to rule. You know when your father passes away, you're going to inherit the empire of Sweden. A large empire, and one of the most powerful on the face of the planet at the time. The length and breadth of the empire of Sweden was from northern Germany to modern-day Finland. It was large, and it was powerful, and it made the Baltic Sea essentially Swedish lake. So you grow up in a kind of circumstance. And then, imagine that when you're 15, your father dies and you ascend to the throne. And just think about for a minute the weird dynamic I would play on the heart of the king, King Carl XII, that is who we're talking about. Because on one hand, you do love your father, you don't want him to die. Well, on the other hand, it sure would be nice to get your hands on this empire. Sweden was an absolutist monarchy at the time, which basically meant that if King Carl XII said anything, it was done. That's a lot of power. It's especially a lot of power for someone... At 15, I shudder to think what I would have done when I was 15 if I had that kind of power. He didn't get very long to enjoy the power. There was a plot scheming in the background, and he ended up getting declarations of war. Not just one declaration of war, mind you, three declarations of war. He was effectively at war with all of his neighbors shortly after receiving the crown. He was at war with Russia, Poland, and Denmark. The leader of Russia at this time was called Peter the Great. Of course, the Great was added on later. Few men are called the Great while they still live. But this rivalry that would come about between Peter and Karl would be called one of the most significant in a long time, at least according to Voltaire. In fact, Voltaire says of these two men that they are, quote, by common accord, the most remarkable men to have appeared in over 2,000 years. Otherwise, I would not have written my own history of Charles the Twelfth, end quote. Charles XII being the Anglicanized version of Carl XII. It really depends on if you prefer the Latinized versions of names such as these or the native version. I prefer the native version, Carl. Voltaire, in his book on the kings, sings Carl's praises. He said he owed much of what was best in his own life to his imitation of Carl XII. His complete indifference to pain, the Spartan-esque heroism. You see, Voltaire was a large proponent of men as basically Spartans. Voltaire's idea of men was that if you really liked someone and wanted them to become stronger, you wouldn't wish 
good things upon them, you would wish terrible things upon them, because it would make them stronger and better people. His entire idea was that good times basically make you soft. So he really admired Carl. Voltaire said of him, quote, He inspired me with the idea of triumphing over physical weakness, weariness, and pain, to inure his body to bear all manners of hardships indifferently, to bathe in ice, or face the torrid rays of the sun, to discipline his physical powers by gymnastics, to despise the niceties of food and drink, to make his body an instrument as of tempered steel, and at the same time to have the body absolutely at the disposal of the mind. That seemed to me conduct worthy of a hero. And so, boy-like, I tried to imitate him, and succeeded at least so far as to be happily indifferent to the circumstances of my personal environment. End quote. To Voltaire, Carl was a shining example of what modern men should aspire to be. Now this war that Carl would face would be stacked against him from the very start. It would have three to one odds against Sweden. He would be on war on every single front around his country. And it's worth noting, this was Germany's worst nightmare in World War I. All of their diplomacy was aimed at not having a war on the Eastern Front and the Western Front. Perhaps some of that came from watching this war so much earlier. Now, a little bit of background about Karl. He's the great-grandson of Gustavus Adolphus, the Lion of the North. That king, of course, who was so significant in the Thirty Years' War. Karl was a very determined king. He was known for tactics so bold in battle that people thought him insane. And his commitment to the war was so great that he was never married and never had kids. Karl managed to inspire men all over the world even while he was still alive. Poems, notably by Samuel Johnson, who was normally devoted to anti-war causes, said, quote, Peace courts his hand, but spreads her charms in vain. It's very true, and the king seemed to know that himself. The king is quoted as saying, I have resolved never to start an unjust war, but never to end a legitimate one except by defeating my enemies. He was a very idealistic man, but also an incredible tactician. He constantly won battles which conventional wisdom said he should have lost. He seemed absolutely insane with his battle plans at times, and won frequently against 5-1 to one odds. That's impressive even to this day. A lot of the initial success Karl had was due to his father and the other excellent Swedish reformers such as Axel. The country had an excellent internal structure, and Karl could therefore focus on war. It's very important for the internal structure of the country to be sound when wars come about, simply because if it's not sound, you can't focus on war as much. Militarily speaking, Sweden also had a comparative advantage with the other nations in Europe at this time. Sweden had spent a lot of time developing its military and had great leaders such as the Lion of the North. Their infantry was extremely well organized. The tactics they had were simply better than any other nation in Europe at the time. And they had an exceptionally effective draft, and particularly this point was very important. If you compare it to Russia, who had a poor internal affairs at the beginning of the war, but also had a large pool of manpower, you can really see how important bureaucracy is. Because Sweden was able to call upon its few men much more effectively than Russia, it gave them an edge. If Russia had an effective bureaucracy at the beginning of the war, things probably would have turned out very differently. Part of the reason Sweden had the tactics it did was because it was a tactical response to being an empire with lower national reserves and an inability to recover losses at a rate that larger nations could. They developed extremely aggressive tactics. For instance, the infantry of the time usually took turns firing at each other while remaining stationary, and then reloaded. Swedish soldiers, however, would basically not reload. 
a battalion of men would run at the enemy with the lines four ranks deep and about 150 men wide. They would run at the enemy, and then the first line would shoot. And instead of reloading and pausing, like other nations would expect them to do, they would go to the back of the formation while the next line would shoot. Many of the Swedish soldiers still were equipped with pikes as well, and all the musketmen had swords. So they would go until they were in melee combat, and they were well equipped for that. And then you add to this the idea that they weren't just walking towards the enemy. Sometimes they would charge at the enemy while they did this. It would just drain morale, because you don't know how to react to this. You've never seen this before. It was also devastatingly effective against an opponent who would only get a few volleys off in the time it took the Swedes to get several off, all while getting closer and closer to you. The enemy would be unable to recover and unable to rally with the constant pressure. So the Swedes had military superiority at the start of the war. That's incredibly important. If you think today just how much money the U.S. spends maintaining its military superiority, you can see how important it is for nations. Now, of course, having military superiority doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win any of the wars, but it does help. The American Revolution is a great example of this in action. The Americans didn't necessarily have any better tech than the British, but they still won. But still, if at the start of a war you can pick which side to be on, you'll pick the side with a technological advantage every time, assuming everything else is constant. And eventually, of course, a level playing field will happen, and this is somewhat what happened to Sweden. Towards the end of the war, the military advantage slipped away. Technology isn't something that remains forever at a high level at a certain place. If that were true, then Rome would always have been at such a high technological standard that it would have never fallen. The Great Northern War started in part because the King of Sweden was young. He was not a proven leader, and he was thought to be easy to take advantage of. If you're a king, and you're looking at the greatest empire in your region, and you see any kind of weakness, and you want to expand your own power, you're going to jump on that weakness. So they see a 15-year-old boy on a throne, and they start plotting. Sweden was on the cusp of becoming an empire that dominated the north, and as such had many enemies as well. Peter the Great made a pact with Polish ruler Augustus II and Danish leader King Frederick IV. The plan was relatively simple. They just wanted to take advantage of Karl. He was young and inexperienced, and they wanted to curb Swedish influence on the Baltic, which, again, it was basically a Swedish lake. Denmark would attack in the west, while Russia and Poland would attack in the east. The difference in troops when war broke out was three to one. The war started with a bang in February of 1700. Denmark was knocked out of the war almost instantaneously within six weeks. That's insanely fast, even by modern standards. If you think about Operation Iraqi Freedom, that took a significant amount of time. But this was knocking out someone who's technologically speaking and militarily speaking somewhat of a rival to you, and you beat them in six weeks. It's ridiculously quick. But to be fair to Denmark... They don't have the territory that some other large nations do to be able to pull back and withdraw and prolong wars. In Denmark, if someone lands on your soil, you've basically already lost because you don't have the maneuverability to keep fighting. You can perhaps put out a last battle, but that would be it. You would win or lose. Denmark would rejoin the war again later. The first battle against the Russians was a 5-1 to one disadvantage for Sweden. The advantages they had were two, however. Firstly, the Russians did not even know they were there yet, such was the effectiveness of their bureaucracy. They raised troops at such a quick pace that the Russians were still gathering. And secondly, there was a blinding snowstorm to the Swedes' backs. The Russians would never know they were such a small force. Karl not only routed the Russians here, but he took more prisoners than the entire size of his army. Karl sensed the advantage in battle, and was daring enough to use it. 
Not all battlefield commanders would use the elements against their opponents. Some stick to rigid battle plans and are inflexible thinkers. Some like to drop their battle plans, not even consider the weather at all, and if weather is not on their side, they will simply wait it out until the weather is normal, that is to say, clear, and then proceed. Karl took advantage of the elements and won a great battle because of it. Karl then focused on Poland. He won a series of offensives against armies larger than him that made Poland and even Russia sue for peace terms, but Karl declined. He would only sue for peace when he had Moscow. It took five years to come to this point in a war where Karl could have his victory. If Karl had said yes at this point in time, the Swedish Empire may have stood for another hundred years. Looking back, it's very easy to say that he should have accepted peace here. He could have had it on his own terms, and Europe would look much different in the next coming several centuries. But as Samuel Johnson said, peace courts his hand, but spreads her charms in vain. It's around now that Karl decides to invade Russia in the wintertime. It's a cliché now. We easily decry Hitler and Napoleon for invading Russia in the wintertime. We look back and say, what a horrible idea, why would anyone ever do that? Sweden was the first country to invade Russia in the wintertime. The precedent set for Russia may be why they're so suspicious to the West, in their history, continuing even to this day. Three times in history, the West has invaded Russia, always through the Ukraine. They always had to do a retreat, scorched earth, move inwards policy. It would devastate Russia and it would be on grander scales each time. So Russia starts to distrust the West, if they ever actually did trust the West. And in some ways, this could become a self-fulfilling prophecy for Russia, where Russia distrusts the West, and so the West distrusts them, which leads to war again, which leads to war through the Ukraine again, leading to greater Russian distrust, and the cycle starts again from the beginning. Now, why would Sweden even consider invading Russia? Well, Sweden is also from a cold climate. The winter shouldn't have mattered as much as they may have thought. Remember also that Karl was fighting a man who would be called Peter the Great. Those aren't exactly the kind of things that are easy to add into your war plan. This particular winter in Russia was exceptionally cold, and everything just went wrong for Karl. Reinforcements that were supposed to arrive did not, supplies were lost, and overall the army was just in poor shape. To give you an example of how bad off the army was, some men didn't even have gunpowder to fire their guns. A different man would have told the army to retreat in the face of inadequate supplies and an enemy five times the size of yours. In fact, typical military wisdom for this situation would simply be to play defensively. An offensive army generally needs an army five times the size of the defender. The larger, the better, with two times the size being the minimum requirement for victory. So says Sun Tzu, anyway, in The Art of War. So if you think about the situation here, Russia has just enough troops to have a successful offensive against Karl. So in any good military planner's point of view, they would immediately start thinking of defensive options and what they could do to better defend against Russia in order to win a battle. Karl does the exact opposite and attacks them a size five times his. Despite all of this, Karl made it to within a 10-day march to Moscow. Like Napoleon and Hitler after him, he was so close to victory against Russia. Then another moment came that changed the war altogether. He received a letter from a rebel force in the Ukraine. They wanted a way to rebel against Russia and promised a 100,000 strong man army. The appeal of this was too strong for the young king, and he went off to the Ukraine against the advice of his advisors. When it became summertime in the Ukraine, the Swedish and Russian armies met at Poltava. Poltava, for military history buffs, is a name that is remembered. It is a decisive battle of history. As one of my sources puts it, 
It marks the irreversible rise of one state's power and influence at the expense of another's. Karl was unaware before the battle that Russian troops were no longer poor quality. Peter the Great had modernized his army in a hurry. They're up to good European standards now. Fighting at a numbers disadvantage was also even worse for Karl. And it wasn't good before. Before the battle even begins, the king was out doing reconnaissance when he was shot in the foot. This alone, before the battle even started, may have been the deciding factor in the entire battle. His plan relied upon such communication, and it was so one-dimensional, and he had to keep momentum up, that being injured meant that he couldn't lead it as well himself. If he could have, he might have found victory here. Communication failures would be a substantial reason why the Swedes didn't do as well in this battle. Only two people knew the full battle plan. And again, remember the Swedes were so undersupplied and so undermanned. They had almost no gunpowder for some of the troops, and they had almost no artillery at the same time. So to sum up the disadvantages the Swedes faced here, one, the king was injured, so he couldn't lead as effectively. Two, they were outmanned again. Three, they were undersupplied. And four, this one the Swedes actually weren't aware of, was that the Russian troops were not poor quality anymore. They were the, maybe not the same quality as the Swedes, but they were of decent European quality now. The Swedes also had some advantages in this fight, however. Morale was excellent. They had not yet lost a battle in this long war. They were also unified in purpose, and as you can imagine, Russian morale, having lost every battle of the war so far, and having troops within a 10 days march of Moscow, their morale just was not great. Peter had been avoiding a direct confrontation with Karl for quite a while now. He had been drawing him deeper and deeper into Russia. He heard of the king's injury, however, and decided to fight here, because he knew that it would impede the king. He opted to build redoubts, and still refused to be offensive against Karl. This is an interesting thing to note, again, with all the advantages that Russia had, and must have been aware of to a certain extent, he still refused to take action. He continued to play defensively. Now, when he built these redoubts, part of the reason he built them was because the battlefield was surrounded by trees, so the Swedes had to pass the redoubts, so it gave the Russians an additional defensive advantage. The redoubts were built in a type of cross that would split the Swedish forces in two, and would only compound their communication failures. The end result was still not a given. The Swedes had been beating bigger forces the entire war. In this particular battle, the odds were 3-1 to one against the Swedes. The king's plan here was to rush the redoubts, dive so deep behind enemy lines that they would rout. His plan was literally to penetrate the lines so deeply that the enemies would see Swedes around them everywhere, panic, and flee. It's an insane plan, especially when you consider how outnumbered and undersupplied they were. What would you do in this situation? If you had to make an offensive plan, it might be a little different than Carl's. If you were allowed free reign to choose any decision... I would probably retreat this. I, I don't have the character that Carl had to be able to take on these odds and say, yeah, okay, we can attack this and win. I would retreat. But Carl's answer was clearly not to retreat, but to attack. And when outnumbered, you don't retreat. You simply attack harder. In absolute fairness to him, though, the Swedes had been winning the entire war in plans like this. The battle started at 5 a.m. on July 8th. Swedes began the attack, and Carl was carried into the fight. He wouldn't be left out of the fight. He was literally charging with his troops. Things started off well for the Swedes. They were divided into a center, a right, left, and cavalry. They advanced at first, but were forced back by the Russian cavalry, and the Swedish cavalry counterattacked. The Swedes managed to press forward and even through some of the redoubts. Once they hit the redoubts, 
and their forces were somewhat split, the communication failures became more evident. The commander for the right side of the army, either through confusion or a misunderstanding of the plan, slowed down. It should be noted again that some of the troops had no gunpowder and actually killed the enemy and took their weapon in the advance. The center stopped advancing entirely. Carl's plan depended upon striking deep into enemy lines and keeping the momentum up. Once lost, battlefield momentum is very difficult to get back. Before the slowdown, despite all of the factors on our side, the Russians were close to fleeing. And this is why I've said I think the king being injured is the deciding factor in this entire battle. Carl's plan almost worked. But Peter saw the slowdown in the battle due to miscommunication and was encouraged. Both sides advanced into the open, past the readouts, and then the advance stopped. The larger Russian force began to encircle the entire Swedish force, which is just the worst nightmare for a military commander. The Swedish took massive casualties and were forced to break out of the encirclement and retreat. The Swedish infantry absolutely ate shots from the Russian artillery while they were surrounded. When the entire enemy force is surrounded and clumped up, you can shoot your cannons to great effect. The infantry, once it broke out, started routing. The Swedish cavalry covered their retreat, and like that, the battle was over. The hopes of Carolus Rex, though he did not yet know it, died on his battlefield. The Swedish Empire died here and would never rise again. The Swedish army lost thousands of men. Thousands more were captured, and among them was even a field marshal. It was a devastating defeat. Russian victory here isn't something that the Russians can be terribly proud of, to be entirely honest, and my apologies to any Russians. The Russians beat a smaller, undersupplied force with a 3-to-1 advantage and still could have lost the fight. I don't mean to spit on Russian nationalism, but it wasn't exactly the brightest moment in Russian history. After the defeat, Karl and his remaining forces fled to the Ottomans. The Ottomans eventually got sick of him, though they allowed him refuge for a while, and sent him away. Now, why did he flee to the Ottomans? That seems like such a strange move in hindsight. What did they have to do with the current conflict? We have to see that the Russians and the Ottomans were historic enemies. Karl also succeeded in making the Sultan declare war on Russia five times. However, even though the Ottomans got some success against the Russians, they wouldn't continue on. He didn't gain the ally in the south for a long war that he really wanted. And again, part of the reason he came here was because if he had the Ottomans as a strong ally, he would gain a 200,000-man strong army. And it should be said that his war was very popular with the Turks. They had no love for the Russians. Eventually, though, the Sultan of Karl arrested and returned home because he got tired of Karl's constant admonitions for war. Once home, the diplomats tried to divide the enemies for the possibility of a better peace deal. You see, the diplomats had in mind the thought that the war was clearly over and it was time to make peace to the best of their ability. And piecing them out one by one would be a much better deal than if they all pieced out together. If they all piece out together, they hold more territory. And generally, they were just stronger together. If Sweden tried to piece out Russia, Poland, and Denmark all together at once, they would get a much weaker deal, simply because Sweden was in a relatively weaker position than if it negotiated, say, with Denmark one-on-one. -on -one. However, once Karl got back, all he wanted were new armies to fight with, and he got them. He went straight to Norway. He wanted to make a separate peace with Denmark, who had rejoined the war. He was also, at this time, desperate to get an ally with the British. He tried to negotiate, but it wasn't exactly with the mainstream British government. He negotiated with the Jacobite rebels, which understandably upset the British, and they also declared war upon Sweden. During one battle in Norway, something happened under the most mysterious of circumstances. The king was fighting with his men, trying to secure that peace. When he was shot, to this day, we don't know who shot him. We don't know if it was his enemies or if it was his own men. 
This has been studied three times in Swedish history, and the first time it came to the conclusion that he was shot by his enemies, and the other two times it's come out to the conclusion that he was shot by his own men. What is the actual answer? We don't know. His own men had a reason to hate him. They'd been away from home for such a long time, and this had been such a long war, and the king simply wouldn't consider peace until he had won. And it was increasingly looking like it was impossible to win. This is truly a great mystery of Swedish history. Despite all of this, Sweden managed to get reasonably good peace terms with the Danes. The eastern coast of Sweden was not to be as well off. The Russians had naval control and assembled three groups. One in the north of the country around Uplands, one around Stockholm, and one around Sudermanland. The ships held 30,000 troops. Not enough to successfully invade Sweden, perhaps, but they raided the country constantly and burned major Swedish cities such as Stockholm. The war finally concluded with a decisive Swedish defeat. Even in defeat, Sweden had a few things going for them. The Grand Coalition against them were unable to agree on mutual peace terms, so they would peace out individually. Russia's overreaching was a prime example of why they couldn't stay together as one cohesive whole and get an excellent peace deal in their favor. Russia wanted military bases as far away as northern Germany. The Swedes also had French diplomatic aid because the French didn't want their Swedish allies to lose all of their holdings in Germany. The Great Northern War ruined the Swedish economy. The empire and prestige they had once had were all lost. Absolutist monarchy was discredited as a result of Karl's war. And the war was enormously expensive, both in terms of gold and manpower. The war is from 1700 to 1721. Another upside of the downside for Sweden was that plundering was largely done outside of Sweden because most of the fighting was outside of Sweden. It's tempting to blame someone for all the looting and civilian casualties, but this was extremely common, and supply chains were hard. It's hard to blame anyone for something that was constant and always happened in all of the wars throughout much of history and even continues to this day in some wars. The civilian toll still shouldn't be ignored. There's some questions we're left with once this war is over. And they're questions that textbooks would completely avoid, but I'm not a textbook, and I'm not a historian, so I'm going to embrace the questions because that's the fun part of history. History is just dripping with hotly debatable moral choices and actions that can be extremely interesting to discuss if they're only allowed to live a little bit. If you put some passion into some of the different viewpoints that has long since evaporated, you'll see just how passionate people could be about these things. How are we to judge Carl? It's difficult to judge anyone, even ourselves. None of us are impartial judges, and we all have our own dogmas and biases. The times we live in shape all of us, and we should be aware of that. I'm going to split the question of judging him into several different parts. All of the questions and perspectives I bring up can be intermixed, and a lot of time can be spent analyzing things this way, but I'm going to attempt to keep this brief. First, the question of the moral justification of his actions, or, in other words, was it right what he did? In judging his actions here, we run into a question that we as a species have always struggled with. When is waging war just, if ever? Is waging warfare in defense of an empire morally just? Warfare is not always justified. Even the most warmongering society would admit that there are situations that it is not good to go to war, that warfare is not justified. But traditionally, defense is a morally valid reason. I'm thinking specifically in regard to the ancient just war doctrine and its more modern versions, which all lay out the possible acceptable reasons for warfare. I think there is still a broad consensus in the world that defense is always a good or acceptable reason. The second part of judging Carl comes from looking at his intentions. Part of the criteria for a war being just, and many things being just, are the intentions. And since Carl XII was the absolutist head of the state, 
almost all of this rests upon his shoulders. So what were his intentions? This is, in one way, impossible to know. We can't live in his mind as he did. We cannot occupy his thoughts. So we cannot judge anyone else with any kind of certainty. But we can look at their actions and draw plausible conclusions. Carl, by all accounts, seems to have done all of what he did in defense of his country, his empire, and God. He, for whatever it is worth, seemed to truly believe that he was doing just work and that God was on his side. His intentions do not seem to be evil intentions. If Carl Twelfth was waging warfare for his own glory, as leaders would do in another time, we could say in our modern minds that this was an evil act. Acting for his own glory and killing others and plundering land would be wrong if it was merely for individual gain. This then begs the question of whether the Swedish people gained anything from the empire. Now that, in and of itself, if you broaden the question a little bit, is such a fascinating question. Did any people under any empire ever benefit from the empire existing? That could be its own show in and of itself, but that's just something to think about. There's one other thing that should be considered, however. The times he lived in and the circumstances around him should be taken into account. I've saved maybe the most controversial aspect of this for this section. Carl refused peace, even when he could have ended the war. He simply utterly refused to be at peace, even when victory was far from him. It certainly seems to have brought a degree of unnecessary violence and destruction. But seeing as we're looking back on history, I think this could be largely forgiven. He thought he was born to rule, and God spoke through him. He was wrong, but he thought he could have an absolute victory, and for years the evidence of the war did seem to speak in his favor on this. But in another light, maybe this was all just the struggle of the ruling classes fighting in different countries, and fighting for dominance while the people were used as cannon fodder for their wars in which they would gain nothing. Was it the defense of a worthy empire, or the ruling classes fighting themselves? And as far as Carl Twelfth was concerned, he seemed to truly want to defend his people and country and empire for reasons such as duty and God. He did not seem to have ill intentions. There's a lot of difficult choices here in judging other people. And who is to say what the right choice is? If a different person were in charge, with a different personality and a different set of values, at the very least, the war would have ended differently. Perhaps a different personality would not have been able to have such success in the beginning of the war, and would have capitulated quicker. Another person may have been able to win just enough battles to get a white peace and preserve the empire for another hundred years. If you were to find yourself the king of an empire under attack, what would you do? There's only a finite number of options, right? You could surrender immediately and concede whatever they want. Or you could fight to the death. And you can do anything in the middle. You can fight for as long as your war machine allows or you can capitulate immediately. Now, if you capitulated immediately to lessen the effect of war, that may seem to be a pacifist way out. Or a soft-hearted answer at the expense of greatness. A lot of this just depends on what era you're born in. In certain eras, some people would despise an immediate capitulation simply because you would lose the greatness of fighting in a war. In other eras, people would welcome the immediate capitulation because it would save lives. The other choice, waging a war for the sake of maintaining an empire, while all empires will eventually fall, may not seem the optimal choice for others. Again, a lot of it depends on when you're born. With the king being who he was, it's clear enough that victory was achievable in that war. A few different times. Ultimately, victory eluded the king through either his own mistakes or simply fate. Or both. Thanks for listening. Enjoyed the show? Tell a friend. It really helps. If you want to get in contact with Joe Newton, you can reach him at facebook.com 
slash historical intentions.